excited because today is the wrap-up of our series, Can You See It? Are you excited about that? I'm going to give you a little sneak peek of what we're starting next month. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this or not, but it's called Red Flags, and it's all about relationship ups and downs. So we're finishing up this week. So next month, we can focus all on relationships. So make sure that you stay tuned. There's some good stuff. I've already started writing my message for that. Well, here's my question for you today. Can you see it? Yeah? Well, let me just say, first of all, as we are starting this message today, um, I want everybody in the room just to tune in. We are going to just dive a little bit deep. Then we'll come back up for air. But uh, I want everybody in here just to walk away and just connect with the Lord in a way that maybe, maybe it's been a while or maybe it's uh, a level that you've never experienced before. But we're going to have a really good time today and we're going to go deeper in some things and just ask the Holy Spirit for his presence to show up. I know we got people right now from all over the world that are joining us. We've got New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, California. Ohio, New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, Virginia, Connecticut, Alabama, Mississippi, and Maine. Will you give everybody a hand that is tuning in? I tell you, I love digital missions. It used to be to go to the mission field, you had to get on an airplane uh, and go to another part of the world, but one click of a button digitally and we can connect to all different parts of the world. So thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, I want to start in the New Testament. We're going to start in the book of Ephesians. And I want to just give you a little bit of uh, background first. The New Testament is comprised mostly of epistles. And epistles is just the Greek word that means letters. And Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And they were letters that he sent out to different churches to make sure to equip them uh, for whatever they were dealing with in their specific church. And so he sends a letter to the Ephesians, and he's basically letting them know how to live appropriately as followers of Jesus uh, in a very hostile social climate and a very hostile cultural climate. And so I think there might be a few nuggets in there we could probably use. Would you agree? Might, might sound a little bit like today. But he's writing, encouraging the saints to remain in a fighting stance despite any spiritual forces that have been arrayed against them. Interesting enough, when Paul is writing uh, to the Ephesians, he's actually on house arrest. So he's imprisoned at the moment. But at this particular time, it's before he uh, has to stand in front of Nero. Nero is the, the Caesar, and Nero is the one that actually ends up beheading him in around 64 AD. But at this particular time, Paul is on house arrest, and it's a little different than what we might know to be house arrest, where you have the little bracelet around your ankle, and you uh, are in the house and you're not supposed to leave. What used to happen with them is they were in the house, but they had a guard that was actually chained to them. So a little, little different scenario. But here is Paul chained to a guard 24-7, and he pins Ephesians 1. We're going to start in verse 17. 
It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. In essence, what Paul is saying is he's saying, may the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. What does that mean? Well, it means to not just have sight, but to have vision. You see, eyesight is what your natural eyes can see, but vision is what your heart can dream. The things that you can already see, but you can't see yet with your eyes, that is what vision is all about. And the thing that's so significant about Paul's teaching here is that Paul is chained up. So there are some restraints on his reality, but yet he still pins this. Where if we are honest, many of us, our circumstances would dictate to us whether we thought we had vision or not. Our circumstances can dictate whether, you know, we're on the top of the mountain or we're in the valley. Our circumstances quite often dictate to us instead of us letting our circumstances know what's what. And right here, Paul is saying that no matter what you go through, you can still have vision. Don't lose your vision because of your situation. In Ephesians uh, 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think, here's the, the kicker, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. How many of you know you can't get more power than exceedingly abundantly above what you could ask or think? That's a whole heck of a lot of power. And God is not able to just do above and beyond what we ask or think, but abundantly above. That's a whole lot of power. You can't get more power than that. But here's the thing. Eyesight can help you navigate your circumstances, but vision can actually change your circumstances. But many times, our eyesight changes our circumstances. We look at what's going on around us, and we determine that to be our limitations. And what God is trying for us to understand is it's according to the power that works in us. Now, most people, when they read that, would think, oh, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. And it is talking about the Holy Spirit, but what it really means in this Greek translation here is not just the power of the Holy Spirit in you, but to the degree of the power you are willing to exert based upon what has already been given to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. In essence, 
You can have a sword in your closet. You can have power that is readily available and at your fingertips. But just because you have the sword in your possession does not mean that it's working on your behalf. It has to do with what you are willing to exert based upon what has been put into your hand. In essence, unless you take the sword and you pull it out and you use it, you wield it and you use it, you will never walk in the power that you are not willing to exert. Many people, when they read in the Bible where it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain, that that is wrong. Many people think it means saying GD is a curse word. That is not what it means by taking the Lord's name in vain. What it means is you've taken on the Lord's name, but you aren't walking in the power that he has given to you. Thus, you've taken on the name and you've done so in vain because all that he has given to you is not being used. It's having the sword in your possession. You've taken possession over it, but you're not defeating battles because it's not being wielded. There is energy and exertion that is needed on our end. Some of us think just possessing the sword is enough. I've got the sword, but it's the amount that we are willing to use is where the benefit is. I love what Phillips Brooks says. He says, pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God, in answering it, will not wish you had made it larger. Pray not for crutches, but for wings. Here's my question for you today. Do you pray big prayers? Do you dream big dreams? Do you believe for miracles? Do you believe for what with your natural eyes might look impossible? Or have you gotten short-sighted or complacent or just coasting? Maybe you look at your past and you think of all the things from your past and so you dumb yourself down because somebody from the neighborhood I'm from, I, I shouldn't be able to do but so much. Or, or somebody with the kind of background that I have, I, I should only be able to, to live at a certain limit. And we limit ourselves not because of the power of God, but because we don't want to tap into it. We want to go just so far as our flesh can do. Because when I have to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, that requires some effort. So it seems a whole lot easier if I could just coast and get by and just live average. Because if I live average, then it doesn't require a lot from me. Many of us dumb ourselves down because we don't want to exert the energy that it takes to engage. I would even say that 
the battles we are facing in our country right now. If all of the Christians went into their proverbial closets and got their sword out and started using their sword, we would not be in the condition we are in right now. But it's like, oh, let somebody else do that. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Oh, let somebody else do that. It's going to require something from me. Oh, let somebody else do that. I don't want to make people mad. Let me just tell you, if you aren't making somebody mad, I promise you, you're not leading. I'll say that again. If you aren't making somebody mad, you aren't leading. There should always be opposition when you are pushing back the forces of hell. That should not feel easy and comfortable. It should feel like you've been in a battle. The problem is, is we don't always want to do what it takes to recover from the battle. We don't know how to get in the presence of the Lord and allow him to minister to us. So we'd rather just disengage Step back, play it safe, and and then I can just let everybody else do, do my battle and do my bidding for me. But that's not what God has called us to do. We should have big, hairy, audacious vision, every single one of us. And that vision might look different, but it should be this well, this spring that is bubbling up on the inside of us that unless we are doing what God has called us to do, man, we can't be silent. We can't sit still. And when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords lives on the inside of us, how could we not want to push against the forces of darkness? It's because many of us haven't dealt with our past. Many of us are like, man, I don't know if I can do it. And you're right. You probably can't, which is why you've got to get your sword out, which represents the power. Because you will repeat what you are not willing to repair. God's ability to answer prayers transcends not only our spoken petitions and prayers, But it far surpasses such thoughts that are too big for even words to contain or or an utterance to be able to just come out of our belly. It just, it's so big, God. How can I do that? And without him, we can't. And, And so sometimes we'd rather just play it safe instead of asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us. You see, if it's a path I already know, That's familiarity. But when God is asking me to go and do things that I haven't done before, I've got to lean on and trust on him because I don't know the path. And many of us, that makes us uncomfortable. So if I don't know the path, I'm opting out. And that's saying, hey, God, I don't trust in you. I trust on my ability. And how many of us are walking around in our own strength instead of his strength? Above and beyond our wildest conceptions and most daring expectations is a God who is able to do. You don't have to be able. He is able. And he likes it that way because that way he gets the credit. Right? 
Those desires which can be dumbfounding from their vastness and maybe even shocking from their very boldness are minute. They are so small, itty-bitty, teeny-weeny requests compared with the power of God. The same God that spoke and the universe spun into orbit is the same God that we serve. The question is, is can you see it? Can you see it? Because you will never see it here unless you can first see it here. That's what the spiritual realm is all about. Things happen in the spiritual realm before they manifest in the natural realm. And we've got to understand how to tap into that. We often do not understand the depth and the power of God's ability to move. So what do we do? We ourselves just don't move at all. That's how complacency sets in. Because our loftiest imagination still comes infinitely short of his ability. So we often get complacent. We go off the grid spiritually. And God is like, where are you? I put big things inside of you. Why are you dumbing yourself down? Why are you selling yourself short? Do you not know who I am and I live on the inside of you? Why do we do that? Why do we struggle asking and believing for big, hairy, audacious, bold, over-the-top prayers? Why, why do we dumb ourselves down sometimes? Well, it's simply because we don't know God's attributes. Because if we knew his attributes, they would rub off on us. We don't understand how God works. I want to read something to you from Genesis chapter 30. But before I read that, I want to just lay out a story a little bit from you. And it's the story of Jacob and Laban. And Jacob is a man who falls madly in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. I mean, she was stunning. She was gorgeous, just absolutely jaw-dropping. She looked just like Pastor Stephanie. I mean, gorgeous, beautiful. And when Jacob saw her, he was just out of breath, like Pastor Aaron gets when he looks at his Pastor Steph. I mean, just out of breath. And he told Laban, I'll do anything for you if I could just marry Rachel. So Laban says, okay, you've got to come and you've got to serve me. Work for me, tend my sheep, tend my flocks. Seven years you work for me and I will give you Rachel. And he's like, oh, look at her, she's fine, done. The problem is, is that Laban's a deceitful man. So, the night of the wedding, they gave him a little too much wine, and he lost his vision, right? And so, what does Laban do? He swaps out Rachel, and he puts his firstborn daughter, Leah, who the Bible said she was nowhere near as beautiful as Pastor Stephanie was. She had an eyesight problem, a vision problem. But it says that Laban pulled Rachel out and put in Leah. 
And so when he goes to consummate the marriage, he'd been drinking too much. He has no idea that it's with Leah until the next morning. Could you imagine on your honeymoon night waking up and the wrong woman is in your bed? Uh-oh. He's furious. And he says to Laban, what have you done to me? And Laban says, oh, did I not tell you the rules of my country? You have to marry uh, the eldest daughter first before you get the other. Must have slipped my mind. But if you would like to have Rachel, you just have to commit another seven years for her. Fourteen years. Fourteen years. But he was so in love with Rachel that he committed to do it. So time goes by. He's got a big family. I tell you. Pastor Troy always says, I can't handle one wife. I don't know how these guys did this. <laughs> Obviously, it was outside of the will of God. But he's like, I've served you. My time is up. Can I take my possessions? Can I take my family? And can we go? So we're going to pick up in Genesis 30 in this story. So he, Jacob, said to him, you know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming, and now when shall I also provide for my own house? In other words, hey, the both of us can't work this land. Can I take my family and my rightful wages and go? So he said, Laban said to Jacob, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall, you shall not give me anything. I don't trust you. You're sneaky. I don't trust you because I've seen what you can do. You're deceitful. But if you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all of your flocks today, removing from there all the speckled, spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. This is about to get really good. I want you to keep listening here. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it's with me. In other words, hey, Laban, I don't trust you, so let's just make this pact. I'm going to give you all the ones that are considered perfect, the ones that don't have any spots, the ones that are all one color, and, you know, if they're brown uh, among the lambs, you, you know, I'll keep all of those. The ones that are, are perfect, you keep all those, and then that way at the end, it'll be very obvious who's whose. And it's like if you were to color code your money, okay? So he's like, it'll be easy peasy. This way, nothing will get confused. And this is how we'll do it. What say you, Laban? And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. 
So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, and everyone that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and he gave it to them into the hand of his sons. Then, here we go, he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. All right, we're about to dive in deep. You ready for this? Now, Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and the chestnut trees. He peeled white strips in them and exposed the white which was in there in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters and in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. I want you to hear what's happening here. Jacob takes all of these branches and he takes three different types of trees because he understands that underneath the bark, they all look differently. So he carves in these three different tree branches. He carves out speckled, spotted, and streaks all on these branches. And he has tons of branches that he's gathered. And he takes speckled, spotted, and streaked branches and he puts them down where they eat in the bottom of their feeding troughs. And then in the water troughs where they come and drink, when they look down into that reflection to drink, they are seeing back speckled, spotted, and streaks. That's what is looking back at them. And it didn't matter what color animal they were. They were seeing streaks, spots, and speckles every time they came to eat. Then you see what happens. It says he put his own flocks by themselves and he did not put them with Laban's flocks. And when it came to pass, when the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob would put the rods in before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters so they would conceive, the stronger ones would conceive when they are looking at speckled, spotted, and streaked. But when the feeble ones would come, He didn't want them producing speckled, spotted, and streaked. So he would take the rods out when the feeble ones would come. And they would look in and they would see their own reflection. And they would reproduce after their own reflection. So what happened was we see, it says, thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and he had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. What did Jacob understand about how God has created us? Whatever you put in front of your eyes is what you will reproduce. 
So what is happening here is you become what you behold. So when they were healthy, he wanted them to see speckled, spotted, and streaked. So they are looking back, and they could have just been a white lamb. But when they see speckled, spotted, and streaked, they aren't reproducing after what they're supposed to be. They're reproducing after what they are beholding, after what is looking them in the face. When the weak ones would come, he's like, okay, okay, you, you can re reproduce after your, what you look like, knowing those would get separated off into Laban's flocks. You will conceive and give birth to that which you put in front of your face. The question is today, what are you beholding? If you are struggling in a particular area, Think about what you've been putting in front of your face. Think about what it is you've been looking at. Pastor Troy and I have been married for 32 years, and we got married when I was 20 years old. And I wanted to be a young mom, and we thought, you know, let's wait a year or so, and then we'll start trying to have children. Uh, but it just wasn't working out. And I'm going, wait a second, I shouldn't be having this issue. I'm young, uh, and after a few years went by, I mean, they put me through a battery of tests. Um, they put my husband through tests, and he was fine. They said it was something to do with me, and they were trying to figure out. So one of the things that they wanted to do before I had to go through any of the surgery route is they had me charting my temperature because that can dictate a lot to you about your hormones and what's going on with your body. So for months and months and months and months, they had me charting my temperature. They gave me what's called a basal thermometer, which is incredibly sensitive. It's way more sensitive than a regular thermometer. It can give you like to the smallest little minute amount in points what your temperature is, and they're incredibly accurate. So what they would do is they would have me lay it on my bedside table, and before I could even get up in the morning, because that would raise your temperature, you have to lay completely still and take your temperature and just reach over and grab the thermometer, and then after I would take my temperature, I'd have to chart it. Every day I had this big long chart and I would take that into the doctor and they would look at it and they could tell what they needed to tell based upon where my temperature is. And so one morning after just years of looking at negative pregnancy tests and years of charting temperatures, I reach over to get my thermometer and my thermometer is gone. Like it's not there. And I know I have to take my temperature, and the thermometer's gone. And so I know I can't get up to look for it because that's going to raise my temperature. And it's going to throw their tests off. So I'm like, Troy, Troy, I need you, I need you to, to help me. My thermometer is missing. And he's like, no, it's not. 
And he rolls back over. I'm like, yes, it is. It's not on the nightstand. I need you to help me. Uh, like My thermometer's missing. I thought maybe it had fallen underneath of the nightstand or underneath of the bed, just trying to figure it out. He said, it's not missing. Everything's fine. Go back to bed. And I'm like, dude, come over here and look. It's gone. It is not here. He said, it's not gone because I took it. And I said, you did what? You, you took my thermometer? I said, why would you take my thermometer? First of all, if he even knew how I had to take my temperature, he wouldn't have touched the thing. <laughs> I said, why did you take my thermometer? And he said, because it's become a god to you and we don't have little G gods in this house. So it's gone. Well, now my temperature is really rising, and I'm mad, and I jump up, and I said, you tell me where it is right now, Troy Maxwell, and I'm like digging through everything, trying to find it, and he said, I will not. I will not tell you. You have become obsessed with this. He said, everything is all about temperatures and charts and this and that. He goes, you need to stop. He said, your faith is more in this chart and, and in what these tests and, and you're going online. We, we had internet by that point. It was the dial up and, and you're going on the internet looking up stuff and you're reading these books and you, you just need to, to put God, insert God because right now it's a little G God you're serving. Your faith is more in what the doctors say and more in these little charts you're doing. He said, you, you need to ask God what he has to say. And I was like, you have no right to take my thermometer. I want my thermometer back. Deep inside, I knew he was right. But how many of you ladies understand you can't let him know that right away? <laughs> right? I said, I understand what you're saying. Now, after 32 years of marriage, we would have had a conversation instead of him just stealing my thermometer, right? <laughs> but he, it was earlier on in our marriage, and he was kind of putting his peacock feathers out. So don't take your wife's thermometer. Just talk to her about it and then ask her to hand it over. That would have been better. But the point is, is that I needed to be led in that moment because I had gotten my focus on the wrong thing. And he said, you have to understand what you're putting in front of your eyes. You keep looking negative, negative, negative. Every time, every month, that pregnancy test was negative, 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 negative. And what's in front of my face? Negative, 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 negative. So what did I become? Negative, negative, negative. So I knew I had to change. So I began to say, you know what? I am what I behold. And I need to get the right thing in front of my face. And so I began to put scriptures all over my mirror. I put pictures of children all over my mirrors. I, I put the story of Hannah and praying for a child. I switched what was in front of my face. And I needed to call those things that be not as though they were. Not keep rehearsing what was wrong, but believe God and trust God for what I knew he could do. That 
I appreciate doctors, and I know we've got doctors in this church, and I appreciate you, but guess what? You didn't form and fashion my body. But the one who did had the answer. And so I, I put those all over my mirror. And interesting enough, I don't know how long it was later, but I went into the doctor thinking I had the flu. And I was pregnant with my son. And the night before, I was actually supposed to go and have surgery. And they were going to do exploratory surgery because they still couldn't figure out what was going on. And the night before, my husband said, you're not supposed to have that surgery. And I said, babe, the, the operating room has already been scheduled. I've already taken off work. He said, I just really feel like that, that is what the Lord was saying. And I said, well, why couldn't the Lord tell you that two weeks ago? Like, I'm, I'm irritated because I've already taken off work. I've already made preparations for everything. But I listened, and I canceled the surgery. Had no idea I was two weeks pregnant at the time, and had I have gone on with the surgery, it would have aborted my son. That's why it's so important. Men, may you never, never underestimate the importance of leading your family and being the head of your house, because I was broken, I was hurt, I was emotional, and I needed my headship covering me. My emotions aren't very great at dictating. So I want you to always understand men here at Freedom House, we will always champion you standing up and being in the position that God has called you to be in. We want to see men be men and rise up and lead. That is how God made it to be. And when you rise up and you lead and you are the man that God has called you to be, your woman will stand alongside of you. I thank God for you. I thank God who he has called you to be. And we will always champion that call here at Freedom House because that's godly. It's honoring. And I will tell you, it saved my life on more than one occasion. My question for you today is what needs to be on your mirror? Maybe there's some other things that you've been looking at that have been in front of your face. What do you need to start looking at? Maybe there's a financial scripture that needs to go on your mirror, a healing scripture. Maybe you have a prodigal son or daughter that needs to come back home. Maybe you're like me and you're believing for a child. Maybe you're believing for sickness to disappear or a, a number in a business deal. Maybe there's people you need to put on your mirror, people that you need to forgive. And that's a miracle for you is to let go of that. But what I can tell you is whatever it is you're beholding is what you will end up holding. What is it you're believing for? That's why in Habakkuk 2.2 says, The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. Why should we write it down? Because though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. It may seem out of reach right now, but how long will you believe? If it's constantly in front of your face, that's why I wrote it on my mirror. Something that I'm always in front of. I'm getting ready. I'm brushing my teeth. I'm brushing my hair. Putting it on your mirror, every time you look into it, that's what's gazing back at you is the word of God, believing for your miracle. Writing it down. Our gaze can get off. 
Sometimes we can get so focused on, you know, what the bathroom scale says or what our smartphone says or, you know, we're looking at our next kid's accolade or we're thinking about our dream kitchen. And sometimes we just got to recalibrate. Don't let what you see make you forget what God said. I'm not going to read the scripture, but I do want to tell you about Moses and going up and encountering and being in the presence of God. And he would go up and encounter the presence of God, and God would say, write this down. And he would write it down. And he came down off the mountain, and when he was coming down off the mountain, it says that the people were looking at him, and they're like, whoa. Moses is like lit up right now. The power of God was so strong on him after he'd come from being in the presence of God that the people couldn't even look at him. And it says that he had to wear a veil on his face just so he could talk to the people because he'd been in the presence of God. When was the last time somebody had to wear a veil around us? Because we had spent so much time in the presence of God that it was just all over us. And listen, I'm not saying that every moment of our life is a mountaintop moment. Moses had to come down. He had to deal with reality. But the presence came with him. The presence of God is where we see the miracles happen. The presence of God breaks anything off of our lives that need to be broken. And literally, there are things that are legitimate that vie for our attention. But are we bringing the presence of God with us? Because we cannot imitate a God whose features and habits we have never studied. And sometimes the reason we aren't believing big is because we don't know how big our God is. Maybe it's been a while since we've been around him. Maybe we've been occupied. Sometimes we can get so occupied with ourselves because we have not been totally occupied with God. That's why the Bible says so specifically, calls our eyes gates. We can let in and let out, open or close what needs to come in or what needs to stay out. And the reason we get anxious or depressed or we feel insecure or we feel abandoned or any of those things is because we haven't been in the presence of God because God's presence burns those things off. Your eye gate can be a window of opportunity or an open door for the enemy. We decide which it is. And and I just want to paint this picture appropriately because the Bible says that Moses wore a veil. And very symbolically in the Bible, we see a veil. But it's not like what Moses wore just to hide his face. We see a veil that was in the temple or the church. Why? 
Well, because there was the outer court, then there was the inner court, and then there was the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies is where the presence of God dwelt. Because at that particular time, that veil was there to keep us back from the presence of God because Moses was the only one to see the presence of God and live. Because our bodies have such a sin nature, we can't stand in, in front of such pureness. So there had to be a veil blocking because we, we couldn't have access in a sinful state. What is so powerful is that when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the veil that separated us from the presence of God was torn in two. And I want you to get this picture straight because if we think of the veil as this little flimsy piece of material like a bride would wear on her face, we don't have the right picture. You see, the veil was 60 feet high. And this ceiling in here is around 25 feet high. So think of more than doubling the height of this ceiling, 60 feet high is how high this veil was. And then think 30 feet. So if our ceiling is around 25 feet, add another five feet, that's how wide it was from side to side. It was huge. And then it said it was so thick, it took 72 huge, massive pieces of fabric that were the width of a man's palm deep. It was so thick, it took 300 priests just to move it slightly. It was so heavy. And they said if they took wild horses on each end and tied them to it and had them run, it could not even break it because it was so strong. So understand the magnitude and the significance of this veil that was keeping us back because God didn't want us dropping dead. But he wanted closeness. So what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus, that was the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. We, in our flesh, are so sinful. But that perfect lamb shed his blood. And when he shed his blood, his perfect nature was now adopted by us. An access that we could not have, we could not get before. The Bible says when Jesus died on that cross, that the veil was torn in two. But even more than that, it says it was torn in two, not starting at the bottom where maybe a, a man could have taken a saw and been working consistently to try to cause a breach and to try to eventually tear it and have help pulling it apart. No, 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 no. 
It says that when Jesus cried his last, that the ground began to shake and the earth began to tremble and thunder came about and from top to bottom. In other words, no man's hand did that. It happened all the way, 60 feet up, down to the very bottom. It split open and fell. And the presence of God was now accessible to all of us. Would you stand on your feet with me today? Would you close your eyes right where you are and bow your head? I want to give you an opportunity to go behind the veil where the presence of God is. I would just ask everyone in the room, whether this is new to you or whether it's not, just to lift your hands. And the reason I'm asking you to do that from the very front row all the way to the back, just lift your hands. Just lift your hands. What is that doing? That is the universal sign of surrender. In every language across this earth, the universal sign of I surrender is lifting up your hands. And what we are saying today is, God, I surrender. I surrender my sinful, broken nature. And God, I ask for the shed blood of Jesus Christ to run down over my life today. God, we feel your presence and your power right here. And God, I know that your power is not just contained to this room, that your power is going out right now all across the world as this message is preached. God, we just feel your tangible presence. Keep pressing in. Because miracles happen where there's an atmosphere of expectancy. Expectancy is a breeding ground for miracles in our life. It's fertile soil for a miracle. Whatever miracle you're needing today, a financial miracle, a relational miracle, maybe you need God to touch your mind, touch your body, touch your heart. Whatever that looks like, the veil is torn and the presence is here. Just receive that presence today. We're gonna sing, I believe in you. And we're gonna sing that out over and over. And just let him know that you believe in him, that you believe in his power. The power of the risen one. As our team begins to sing out, can you guys just sing out, I believe in you.
picture your finances not just being restored, but can you picture multiplication? Come on, can you see it? Can you see it today? and get mercy and help in a time of need. But sometimes we forget that we can ask. It's not too big for him. It's not too difficult for him. We just read that he's exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask or think. I want to encourage you today. over us from Calvary is the same blood when he received those stripes on his back that paid for your miracle that paid for your healing that paid for your deliverance that paid for depression to break off you that prayed for anxiety to be released in the name of Jesus that's the God that we serve and I just break the back of insecurity I just tell insecurity, you no longer get to have a hold on people. When they get a view, when they look into your word and what comes back at them, what they behold is your love, your care, your concern for them. You can't live in insecurity when all you're beholding is his word. Insecurity must bow its knee. A lack of confidence must bow its knee. A fear of failure must bow its knee. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I want to ask you today. If you would say, you know what? I need that presence. I need that relationship with Jesus. I need that operating in my life. I want you just to wave your hand like this. Wave your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Just say, man, I need that right now. Thank you. Wave it. I'm going to pray over you. Say, I need that. I need that in my life right now. I need that. I want all of us to say this together. Say, Heavenly Father, we believe in you. We believe in your power. We know and we understand 
that what you did on the cross redeemed us and saved us. We will no longer sit on the power that you have bestowed on us. We will use every weapon and your arsenal to defeat the enemy and to live a victorious life, a life of miracles. In Jesus' name, amen.